guys, this is Jen Deo, and she is an she's an archaeologist and an amazing person and a friend of mine. And we met in Egypt, and she's awesome. And okay, so tell us about your archaeology background, Miss Jen Deo. Okay, so um, I got into archaeology. Um, I started at Boise State with my undergraduate, and um, I worked under Max Pavasek, and um, basically had an emphasis in ceramic analysis and arid landscapes, just because I grew up in the Great Basin and that was kind of my stomping ground. I grew up in Idaho, rural Idaho. Um, and after I finished my undergraduate, I ended up taking a, um, a, a field job in um, Sardinia and I worked with Penn State, which was actually a lot of fun, an arid landscape again and um, I found myself really, really interested in arid landscapes and areas that are kind of um, marginal where people have to adapt and they have to adapt very quickly. And we find that most in arid landscapes, deserts, islands, places where people are kind of cut off from everything else and resources are really limited. That always appealed to me because I always felt like people who were able to do that kind of like had a little bit of extra chutzpah because that's hard Ingenuity, yeah, they <laughs> exactly have to. you and i mean and necessity is the mother of innovation so you see really interesting innovations come out of some of those places and sardinia was amazing so if if uh, and did you like, did you ever get into the giant thing of sardinia did you ever find any okay so i talked about this a couple of weeks ago on earth ancients and someone got really upset apparently on facebook and i haven't been on facebook in a long time so i didn't get to speak up but you know no um i did see a lot of really interesting things they have the tomba giganti and really really beautiful um uh, megalithic architecture all around the island and really amazing just burials in general where they're you know chiseled out of these um, really bleak landscapes they're not super fancy but they're 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 significant and they're consistent so that says something especially on an island where you have limited resources right um the megalithic architecture on that island is amazing and the the difference between saying that giants built uh you know these these megalithic structures is basically based on that stone size and the idea that it would almost be an impossibility for us as we technologically know ourselves today to be able to move a stone a lintel as large as some of them are or even fabricate a stone and move it from quarry to site where it would. I mean, you know, but you could say that for all kinds of sites besides just Sardinia. Exactly. I think because it's an island, it has a little bit more superstition and lore. And I think within all mythology, lore or superstition, there's always a kernel of truth. So, um, you know, how we even define what a giant is, is it a really tall human being in right. the sense where, you know, I, my son is very tall. He's 12 years old. He's five foot four. <laughs> He's going to be a really tall human. My husband's six foot two. I have uncles six four and six seven. So if, if you're an average human being and you've never seen a super tall person, you might think they're a giant. I, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not saying yeah. there couldn't be, you know, a giant giant. That's entirely possible. 
and I just haven't seen it. But I do think that when uh, again, well, I, when we, I just know that they have had a lot of um, oh these teeth that are twice as big molars or that they that but who knows where they are? They always get magically stolen or not or yeah. Yeah, the, the where is it now is always a thing, but that doesn't mean that things aren't, you know, ferreted away or squirreled away in or sold somewhere. Museums. From, yeah. Exactly, or in someone's private collection, because we do see a lot of that, which is really unfortunate. But Sardinia is a magical place, and I would tell anybody who has the opportunity to travel there to go. And the, the people are absolutely amazing and so. Um, just open and wonderful and wanting to share their culture. Um, two interesting things about Sardinia, it is a linguistic isolate. So meaning it speaks the closest to Latin anywhere else in the world. Um, Latin being a dead language, but they speak an Italian dialect that is closest to the original Latin. And um, they are one of the only Caucasian populations that carry sickle cell anemia. Um, which isn't, isn't commonly known. And reason being is because prior to Mussolini, um, Sardinia had a very, very bad um, case of, um, uh, why am I losing the uh, malaria? They had very, very bad instances of malaria. During Roman times, if you got sent to Sardinia, it was, a, it was basically they were sending you there to die. Was it um, kind of like a leper island or something? Where it kind was of. So um, it, it just has some really interesting nuances. Once Mussolini took power, he eradicated malaria, but he also killed a number of the um, native plant species as well as animals. So a lot of flora and fauna left. I, I think the island has no snakes, very few spiders, um, but it does have the biggest worms I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, they call sure them mm. Digging there was like terrifying because you cut through a sidewall and you know, you'd have this big purple oozing Ugh. thing coming out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so after Sardinia, I went to graduate school at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And um, I spent a lot of time working at military installations. Even in my undergraduate, I worked at the Idaho um, training range and then um, did a lot of work for the Department of Defense and Department of Energy, working at various sites. While I was in graduate school, I worked at the Nevada test site, Yuck Mountain, but spent a lot of time out in the field, all over Four Corners area, um, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, um, Utah, doing a lot of just survey work and excavation work. While I was in graduate school, I spent time in Jordan um, working on a pre-pottery Neolithic B site, which was a lot of fun. Um, I was really enjoyed Petra that. Or? Yeah, I it's well, no, it wasn't close to Petra. So it's in a place called Wadi Guer. And it is interesting because so one of the things when you go to the Middle East, maybe you've been in the Middle East, Nikki, you probably have, you've been everywhere. Um, no, in Middle East, I've only ever, I've flown into Dubai and I've been to Egypt like with you, but other than that, I haven't been to them. Yeah. Um, it's on my bucket what's list. What's really fast, it definitely, and Jordan is so easy to travel um, through and the people are so kind and wonderful and just proximity, you know, it's in the center. So you can go to Israel if you choose. Um, 
it, it's a it's a wonderful country. It's very um, it's beautiful. Do you get out into Jordan? It has it's a magical place. The light is beautiful. Um, you can see why so many stories have been told of the region and why it has such, you know, a, a draw and the mysticism to it. What's interesting about it is, is that people come in and live and they just build on top of each other, just continuously. So in, at Wadi Gwer, where we were, there was Roman, Byzantine. I mean, it was just everything, everywhere. You couldn't take a step without stepping on something. There was faience, glass, and you know, you could just walk and see Roman coins on the ground where we were. The Bedouin people were so wonderful and just so caring and took such great care of us when we were there. But it was, so where we were on the site, it was off Awadi, which is basically just a, a riverbed that's empty. There's no water in it. It was up on a little rise. But beyond that, there was this curbit, which is basically like a tell. Think of it as a tell. So you have a city built on top of a city built on top of a city. Oh. And then they just kind of make these funny little um, almost, you know, triangular shapes to them. And there was history everywhere. There was a Byzantine church that still had the apse, the um, archways still intact in it. But no one thought much of it. You know, there's someone... Right you know, uh, watering their camels, you know, a couple hundred feet away. And it's just like nothing. Whereas, you know, you and I would be like, well, you know, uh, yeah. taking pictures and <laughs> what is this? How did it get I know here? it's because we don't have anything <laughs> like that. You know, we basically like just built on prairies. No, you know, no. And, you know, I'm, I like a lot of kids where I'm like, when I grow up, I want to be an archeologist or an astronaut. And <laughs> I made it into archaeology and, and I'm trying to think why I didn't go into be an astronaut because I get really bad motion sickness. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I knew that wasn't going to work. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I got into archaeology. In that's, all, that's awesome. I I, uh, I also was very similar to that. I I, I um, I'm not officially trained. I went into art history. I, I took I took archaeology classes, and I also did um, have a minor in geology because, like, I was I've always been a digger though. I I need to touch the ground. Like when once my hands are on dirt, I'm like, <gasps> I just love that feeling. But yeah. I, it is it is so interesting how even if you look like Mexico City or all of Europe, like people they just build on top of other things. It's I guess they just never moved. I guess that's the thing, you know, it's not like a society goes, all right, we're done here. We're going to restart somewhere else from scratch. I mean, we just are on the same roads, re rebuilding, re restructuring everything all the time. But it is, um, so what, I remember you telling me something about how there was a museum in Oxford maybe, or someplace where you went, where you finally were going like, hmm, maybe, we are yeah. too cocky about what we think of everything. The Ashmolean Museum. Um, it was, I, when I graduated, after I got done with my undergraduate, I did a stone monument um, tour with my undergraduate professor, Max Pavasek. And he took a handful of us to Europe and we just traveled all around Europe and looked at stone monuments, megalithic structures. And, um, Actually, it was him. 
he was probably one of the biggest influences on me when he challenged me to look at things differently. He was really into um, Paleolithic Europe, which I strangely have now like really gravitated towards as I've gotten older. But this particular museum, I just remember seeing artifacts that didn't make sense when you put them in context to the current pr paradigm that we operate out of, especially in relationship to archaeology. Um, you know, we've got this stringent timeline, and even when these things don't work in that timeline, we just discard them rather than try to discover why they don't fit into the timeline. Or traditionally, that's what we have done as archaeologists or academics even. Even though I would say that I really do believe that that's changing more now, I think that academia, as we knew it when I was going to school, that's kind of when you see it churning up and you see maybe more archaeologists like me saying, huh, why, why doesn't this fit into the current paradigm that I'm being taught? And now I see a lot more archaeologists and academics, anthropologists coming out and saying, I'm going to, I'm, I'm rethinking this paradigm. I know that there are Karkuni, who an Egyptologist, I think I heard her recently say, Egyptology is dead. It was written by old white men, you know, over a hundred years ago. What value does that have now? And I'm not saying Petrie is, you know, we can't get anything from that. But I think that we have to go back and see what they did and make sure that it aligns with what we currently know to be true right now, because I think they're incongruent. I, I don't think that they match yeah. up any longer especially in relationship to timelines, especially timelines. I'm, uh, you know, I, I, it's, I'm a huge proponent of a much more ancient culture having inhabited earth than what we actually acknowledge. And reason being is because there are so many anomalous areas and artifacts that would tell me that that was true. Now, I don't have that defined because I'm only one human being. And I think that that's right. a huge thing that we would have to undertake collectively to figure out. But it doesn't mean that I can't investigate on my own and identify what some of those things are. And I do take that seriously. Some of the trips that we take, I feel like that's what we're doing. When we were in Egypt together, I felt like we were starting to assemble some of those missing pieces that might not be as apparent to people who aren't interested in this, but still need to have that information and have it privileged to them because our history has been written by the victors and the victors weren't always truth tellers. <laughs> that, that, that's true. I mean, and like, uh, you know, I also, um, I remember in a, a, call, a, a geology class in college that really I came away just kind of pissed off. It was, we were doing carbon uh, C14 dating and the geology guy was talking, or my geology professor was talking about how, you know, uh, it's basically carbon dies in half-lives. So you can tell like how old it is based on that. But your margin of error is like we, he chose an example that there is a seal dead on the beach. The bones in a carbon 14 thing can look between like he died yesterday or 200,000 years. Like that's the margin of error for some of these things. And he's like, that may, that I know you think that's a lot, but then what if we're talking about 
we're trying to figure out when this dinosaur died. Did this dinosaur die um, 50 million years ago or 150 million years ago? Then it's really good. But I'm kind of going, yeah, but then that really makes it flawed for the actual human story. Like we, like, you know, for instance, the age of the Sphinx is, is under huge contestants. We have, uh, there's so many things where when you actually look at it geologically, I, I thought I was always like, oh, there's just this magic, like they put some chemicals, they just know, and then it's just a date, they just 100% know. There's, there's other things besides carbon-14, and then there's the cosmic dating, which is when like cosmic radiation can be uh, measured on a stone, and that's how long it's been like exposed, for instance, if you broke open a stone right now and, and then you, it overnight and over time, you would be able to tell kind of like when it was broken open, but you wouldn't necessarily, but that, that, that's a whole other bag of, of way of things can get flawed. So for me, I, I finally have kind of gone, okay, you do have to realize a lot of what we know is what we've been told is stories. I'm not saying none of these stories are true or that they don't have some basis in, like you said, mythology or something that is on, on grounds, but you don't have to live by it as rule all the time because our methods for how we got that information aren't always that flawless. Oh, agreed. And they're changing all the time. That's the other thing. Um, I mean, even if you think in terms of like the, the thorium dating that they do in rock art right now, um, which is kind of blowing people's minds because like for instance, uh, in Indonesia and in Sulawesi, they just tested, it's the oldest rock art in the world, figurative rock art, I should say, because there's some older rock art in um, South Africa. That's I think 126,000 years old. This figurative rock art in Sulawesi, Indonesia is, gosh, I think it was like 26 or 28,000 years old, something like that. And it was thorium dating that they had done. Well, previously, dating that they had done in radiocarbon dating of, so the difference is, is that they use radiocarbon dating for um, organic materials. So if they use like charcoal to make their rock art, then they would okay, test that yeah. charcoal and that would be radiocarbon dated. If they use like an inorganic material, like say- um, Another like, stone. Uh, pigment a pigment you know an or uh, an inorganic pigment like i'm an iron oxide or something like that they would use this thorium dating well they did that and they dated very different there were also hand stencils in this art cave in this cave that they and it's a huge cave system so they only started like discovering this and there were varying ages, but the oldest one being that, you know, 28,000 year period, but then other stencils were like 2000 years apart from that other, you know, so there was this ongoing tradition of using these hand stencils to somehow commemorate or record something that was going on, which is quite right. interesting in my mind's eye, because we see hand stencils all over the world. Everywhere. Um, but my point being is, is that if we only relied on that radiocarbon date, we wouldn't know the true date of that rock art because we had only relied on one way of doing things. So I think this incorporation of, you know, as the science changes, then we reevaluate what these things are, or how we date them, or how we interpret them because we have new information to do so. 
for me, academia has been so caught up in we do it one way and we do it this way for this reason. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really, that's not really justified anymore, given that we have, you know, scientific breakthroughs all the time to better how we evaluate and how we approach these things. So I think it is time to go back and use some of this new science to reevaluate some of these things that didn't make sense or maybe to some of these places that we couldn't make sense of at the time and where there are still vestiges of reminders or little clues as to what they are. Um, you know, we're going to Malta in October. And one of the reasons I, I know, I'm so excited. Um, one of the reasons I'm so excited to go there is because I do believe that there are I do think that there are reminders or vestiges of what happened there or who those people were. And I do think that they were older than what we have been told they are. Um, and the truth well, of the I mean, aren't they, aren't they confirmed the that they're at least 9,000 years old or something? That's something that's recognized. So it is one of the I oldest think, civilizations that's well, recognized. Yeah, I, I think they are... Malta is considered the oldest megalithic um, architecture in Europe. And it is, I think it's between 10 and 11,000 years old. But what I find interesting about it is it has some of the most anomalous architecture in the world. Um, and then just some of the most anomalous things like the ruts. The ruts don't make a heck of a lot of sense, especially since right. they're in limestone. And the limestone is dated like I think it's like 250,000 years old, the limestone is, the last time it was, you know, a, a soft underwater, Under, right, something going on there. Um, I find that really perplexing. And the truth of the matter is, the archaeology of Malta is terrible. And I don't say that to be mean. I just say that a lot of what was done in Malta was done by people who had an interest, and they had the money and they were able to do excavations, carry out excavations with no real knowledge of archeology, span but wanting to find treasure. And a number of the things that they did didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. So we have these, we have these assemblages, these artifacts that exist and they don't really have context to them. And we also know that the island was flooded on a regular basis. A lot of the area was used during wartime where people were yeah. doing, you know, hiding out in these structures because a lot of them are subterranean. Farmers were hiding them and filling them with lots of weird stuff. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on. And again, it's not their fault. That's how life happens. I mean, right. nothing is clean and easy. But I still do think that this place, Malta, has something to tell us. And I'm excited to see what yeah. that might be. And again, um, it's, it's I know Graham Hancock. It's, yes. yeah, I know Graham oh. Hancock was just, but it's seclusion He's has really right helped us right now. But that's. Absolutely. And, I, and again, it's another one of those weird little islands that I right. love. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I can't wait for it. It's going to be super fun. And I'm also really interested in learning how to douse and all that that should be really fun especially in place like oh that. my gosh yeah i mean i feel like the dousing part i mean that's really for me stepping out of something that i've never like learned how to do i've always felt like um like energetically i feel like an autodidact you know i'm self-taught when it comes to 
the study of that and just my understanding. And so to be with Maria Wheatley, who is like a fourth generation dowser from, you know, she grew up around Stonehenge. Yeah, I don't, I mean, that's amazing in itself. Yeah. 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 Me too. I'm, I'm really excited about that. I am. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm now very comfortable saying, I don't know our history. I don't know human's history. I don't know how long we've been intelligent for, but I do think it's been longer than we think. And I, and I, there's definitely more to the story than we know. And it's, and it's really cool. Cause I think so many of us are starting to, to go, wait, what? Like I just found out, I had never even no, I never even knew about the Titus Tunnel. And um, uh, like Brian Forster told me that like last, like last or a couple weeks ago when I uh, interviewed him. I had never heard of that before, but he said that for him, that was more impressive than Gobekli Tepli. And he was like, it's, it's, it's this huge tunnel. You don't even know how it's built. And I was like, okay. So I started Googling it and I was looking at it going, wait, what is this thing? There's just, once we start talking to each other and start really figuring out all the things, we can start getting more and more pieces of the puzzles, especially for me, the megalithic culture is, that's the thing that's like, woo, what is this going on? It's like a whole new chapter of history. Yeah, and and don't you feel like, I? there are two things that I feel really strongly about with megalithic culture, because I feel like in Peru, for instance, oh, well, that's Incan. But the Incas are like, no, we, we didn't do that. <laughs> that wasn't us. Um, you know, they added on, they built on kind of that same thing that we were talking about, that same theme of just building on whatever was pre-existing there. Mm -hmm. I think that there's so much to tell us that this megalithic architecture that exists was brought here by builders or architects or engineers who understood how to do that. And we see it all over the world. We see slight little differences that you could even, you know, associate with um, a signature or something that made it unique to whomever it was that was doing, but still those commonalities exist, whether it's, you know, how they, um, the little nubs, I don't know a better word for those. I wish oh, I did. Yeah, it almost looks like they, they pick, pick stuff up on or and that's, you, you can see that all over exactly. different places. You see those and then you see the tongue and groove, the, the little, um, they almost look like little crosses. There was uh -huh. metal in there at one time. time. Yeah, we see those in all of them, but we don't often talk about that. Um, when you see megalithic structures that are still standing, you can see that there's been this consistent way of defacing them or looking for something inside of them, um, which is also really curious to me. You know, all those metal pieces are missing and it mm -hmm. makes sense that they would be missing because metal is valuable. Yeah, I mean, and I've always things. heard like, when you go to the Colosseum, I, there's all these holes all over the Colosseum. And, I, and at first I was just like, whatever, it's because it's old. But it's like, no, that's because they, throughout time, would take out the iron to use for cannonballs. Yeah. And, and you're, and you, you realize that a lot of people don't, they don't have respect for, for the things that are around them. So it, it doesn't matter how long this has been there. It can serve me now. Exactly. I, at, at the same time, we, like history is, when you really start looking at like the, um, what is that? I think it was like the economy. There was a whole entire period of, um, I think it's called the iconoclast where they would go and or even the uh, 
the holy wars and the crusades they would they would take off all the heads of every statue i used to think oh it's because the neck was so weak on all these statues that's why you have all these greek statues with just just the bottom torso and never the head a lot of those were intentionally taken off to defame them and the old i mean it's there's so much stuff that that we don't with that we're we've destroyed our own history or written over it well i mean look at alexandria i mean what a lot of people don't realize and i'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this but it's true christians actually destroyed and they burnt down the library we know that that's true there was a massive ransacking that happened in alexandria during that time um and you know there are any number of reasons why that happened but what the christians ultimately did was destroy perhaps the biggest library of human knowledge exactly and you know did it unapologetically so you know we have to think of things in terms of that as well that well look at look at what the spanish did when they went to um like you know the south america and mexico they took the mayan codexes and completely like unapologetically were like yeah let me have all of your text all of your stuff and we are burning it it is gone thank you yeah so i mean i I guess when you think of megalithic structures back to that we don't know because they have been defaced so you know unapologetically back to that word but i think that there are you know are there still um tongue and groove are there still those little keystones that exist somewhere that we just haven't found out yes and my curiosity lives in is there an alchemy signature associated with these different metals that they would have put in those mm-hmm. little keystones are there you know there are all of these things that we can think of that can lead us to understand who we were. The biggest thing now that I'm most excited about when I think about megalithic structures is digging down to the base, the base, the foundation of whatever you're looking at Mm -hmm. and actually getting soil samples because now we can get DNA. Is it Terra Preta? we can look at all of these different, you know, signatures that exist at the very bottom level, because there's also this idea that, you know, archaeologists have, they've dug down, but they dig down to a certain level because that's where they've been told to stop. Well, it's Clovis culture. Um, I do have a story about this and this is when I was in my undergraduate and it didn't it didn't occur to me until much later what I had come across but after after the fact I was like huh so I I forget I was working in some small Idaho town I don't remember where it was exactly but I know I was still in Idaho but all I remember is the black mat I had dug through the black mat the the black mat being um, associated with Yoga Dryas okay yeah exactly and I just remember the, the lead archaeologist that we were working with, the foreman that we had, I remember she, her saying to me, oh, that's Mount Mazama Ash. And it didn't make sense what she was saying based on what I knew to be true and what I was excavating. And, you know, I, I just kept working and did my thing. And it didn't occur to me until, you know, many years later what was going on. And I was like, oh, 
I just dug through the Younger Dryas and I found stuff under it. Well, right. if that's the case, you know, that's older than Clovis. So were we talking about that when I was excavating it? No, because we were talking about, you know, they wanted to build a, a golf course on top of this area that we were surveying and excavating and doing test pits for. So there, there are these wow. numbers. That's, that's, yeah. that, that's pretty huge actually when, yeah. yeah. And for those so, of you who don't know, there was, um, there, it, I, I don't know where all the region of it exists, but there is an actual layer of like, it's a black line when you're digging through like a, um, the side of a, like, how would you explain what that is for people who don't understand what it is? So when you're excavating, you have different lenses of activity, whether it's a cultural lens or a natural lens. So think of a cultural lens as like digging through a hearth. You know a hearth because you know what a, a, a fire looks like. And then when the fire goes out, you know, it leaves some debris. Mm -hmm. You might have a little bone in there, maybe some um, flakes from making a tool or something like this. Well, Younger Dryas, when it happened over the course of um, that 10 to 11,000 years ago, basically what it did, if it is a comet impact, a, a solar flare, whatever it might be, whatever it did, it left this blanket of burned debris on top of the ground when it happened. Whether it was after, which I imagine it was slightly after because the idea of having massive um, wildfires that took over a lot of the area after the impact happened. So basically what I excavated through was not a cultural layer and it clearly wasn't a natural layer because fire just doesn't happen. I mean, it does happen like that lightning strikes and stuff like that, but it was definitely the indication of something much more profound happening than just a hearth or a natural It's actually, layer, when I've seen videos of it, especially with like Randall Carlson, it looks like it's it's pretty thick little black layer. I mean, as far as layers go, it's, I mean, it's not it like, is. yeah, it's it not is, like one it, little fire. It looks like it's a and pretty it has thick like a, and, it, and what that means is that it burned probably really, really hot for an extended period of time. It has a, a soot greasiness to it. So that's what tells me that it burned for a, a prolonged period of time in that area. Yeah, it, it, it just after the fact, it kind of blew my mind after I became more aware of what Younger Dryas was and hearing some of the other um, possibilities of what it, what it was. I mean, I don't think Younger Dryas impact has gotten as, um, as much uh, attention as it should because it needs to, I personally, awesome I subscribe to it just because Yes. I mean, it explains so much, doesn't it? Just, you know, all of yeah. a sudden closed people gone. And well, everywhere. Just... I mean, it, it, I mean it, when you really start looking, it's really when the megalithic stuff kind of halts. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that the sweet spot and how I see it is the end of the Paleolithic and the beginning of the Neolithic. There's this thousand year period that exists between those two eras the beginning of the Holocene, the end of the, the uh, Pleistocene, basically. So when I look at that as an archeologist or when I'm going through and we're investigating these sites, I'm looking for something that exists in that period of time. That's kind of always where my brain goes because yeah. that's where we'll find the most answers. I think. And that's the blackout dates, right? Like that's the, that's the real, we don't see it. We don't know what's going on. I mean, that's exactly. so, yeah. 
Exactly. And I think in, in relationship to like the megalithic builders, you know, after you have that Younger Dryas era happen, that, you know, that the, the impact and then, you know, the fires and all of the cataclysmic events that follow it, because there would be a period of time where um, things were going south quick and you would have a very low rate of survival during that period. I mean, the resources would be extremely, extremely I mean, sparse. Put us in that context. If, if something like that, okay, we're talking about if, if multiple comet strikes that were like nuclear bombs went off that as, a, as one of the scenarios today and took out, you know, I, I mean, there are continents that just like Doggerland or New Ze or Zealandia, like they have a different theories on how these things came and went. Yeah. But they were kind of not that long ago. I mean, like Doggerland is supposedly around Young Adrias, which is what makes me go like, what? Wait, what? That's yeah. not that long ago. Anyway, if you guys don't know what that it, is, you should look that up. But the thing is, if, if that happened to us today and you had to run with the clothes on your back because there was giant flaming things and you didn't know, I mean, and then we had like an ash around the world for that, that blocked out the sun for years. How are you going to eat? What are you going to do? Like there's, we would be all back to stone age stuff. It's, it's, I don't know. Like we would. Well, you're exactly right. And that's why I think that, so there are small pockets of people that would exist and they're the people that are closer to hunter and gathering uh, modalities of living. Like, so the folks in the Amazon, as long as, you know, it didn't impact them directly, they probably exist. Yeah. Um, Same thing people, with tribes in Africa who can still survive exactly. in the bush and stuff, you know. Or... But what if, if you were maybe an advanced culture, megalithic builder, architect, engineer person, and the majority of your folks got wiped out, I'd go hang out with the folks that were still making it work. So that makes sense to me. And to me, that's possibly why we don't see them is because they basically, and I'm using the proverbial they, the, me the megalithic builders, they associated themselves with people who could um, ensure their survival, essentially. But you're also talking about the loss of a skill set or the loss of a technology that perhaps those hunter-gatherer people didn't value the way that it was valued by yeah. the megalithic builders. So that kind of goes back to that perspective. They're like, you're lucky you're getting fed. I don't care if you can lift up, you know, a 20 mil a 20 ton stone. Who cares? Right. You know, <laughs> eat this, you know, eat this taro. You're fine. <laughs> yeah and it may have been a, a thing where it's like the way our current society works and not to compare the two societies but we it's it's kind of like a no i don't there's not probably one human alive that could make a television there's a couple of humans alive who could make the wires that go into the television or make the glass or maybe make the this or that but there's not one of us alive that could do every component of everything that exists within our own technology like we're so compartmentalized and isolated to certain specialties that we 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 don't we wouldn't know how to how to redo our technology from scratch if we were put into the stone age we'd be like yeah i mean like we had these flying machines but well i don't know how they work there was an engine with some stuff yeah, and, yeah. 
So that's, that's the no, other thing. It's absolutely true. I mean, I even look at like uh, Mexico City, um, Temple of the Sun and Temple of the Moon, the things that they've found in those architectural structures kind of blow me away on a regular basis. What would be the need to fill the entire bottom section of a pyramid with mercury, with mercury and heavy metals? And they have that in China has mercury, uh, yeah. mercury around the, the, the uh, pyramids. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. That like just, to, and reason being is because it's a, you know, a heavy toxic metal that will kill you. And I'm, I feel pretty confident that they knew they that. They knew that, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, um, you touch it enough, stuff's gonna happen eventually. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I think that we underestimate those things and we think, oh, it was ceremonial or, oh, they, they were doing it, was it pretty. because. Right. Exactly. And it's like, that is not enough of a reason to put yourself in that kind of danger. Yeah. In my opinion. Well, I think we always have this assumption that people before us were stupider and we're getting smarter and like, it's just a trajectory of this. And I don't know if that's always the case. I mean, as far as like survival strategies, I mean, we have like lost so much of that. I mean, I live in Minnesota in, you know, where it's really cold. And one of the things that I've really tried to do with my 12 year old is make sure that, you know, he can survive outside should he have to be outside. And um, to the point where I'm like, take a survival class or learn how to build a shelter and do those things because they're so underrated today because we live in, you know, climate controlled homes mm -hmm. and we prior to COVID, worked in climate controlled buildings where, you know, you have very involved HVAC systems. Um, and I mean, don't even get me caught up in how much that's changed our bodies. I mean, yeah, exactly. the allergies, um, the fact that we don't interact with, you know, soil and <clears throat> beneficial germs and, you know, yeah. increasing our biomes. Well, so. the, I definitely feel like our, even my own, I'll speak for myself. I tried gardening this last year and I did, I did it in pots and stuff in my backyard. Everything died. I got, you know, um, like I got like the $40 carrot, you know, <laughs> or the, the $40 one tomato or something. The, the amount of stuff it is not just like, oh, you plant a seed and it grows and you're good. There's more it's to involved. it. It's involved. And there's, you, it's not something you can just be like, oh yeah, I'll like water it tomorrow or like the next day or something, you know what I mean? No. Like there's, there's, so it's, it is a learning process. I felt compelled to be like, hey, I should know, or at least a, a percentage, even if it's 1% of my food, maybe I should grow. Like that would be kind of a neat, that might nutritionally be better for me. That'd be, might be good. It's, it's, it's funny so you say that. From our food source. It's very funny you say that because I think that, um, you know, I am a wild gardener. I love to garden. I, isn't that a natural progression yes, from archaeology? She hates plants. Look at her background. <laughs> from archaeology to gardening. Um, I am gardening in a northern climate is really challenging. You would That's be an earth thing. fairy. If you were a fairy, that would be your power. You would be an earth I'm fairy. a green witch. I mean, that's... Yeah. That's definitely what I go by. Um, I think that, well, I also wanted to bring up Terra Preta because I'm so crazy about Terra Preta. Um, but back yeah, so to explain those, to people who don't know what Terra Preta is. It's so, this beautiful soil, but tell us about it. 
it is this beautiful soil that we find on three continents prehistorically. Um, we find it in South, we find it in South Africa, in um, the Amazon, so South America um, and uh, South Africa. I'm missing one. I think it's Australia, Australia or New Zealand, one of those two, maybe okay. both of yeah. them. The reason why it's so significant is because the soil is engineered. It is actually the amalgamation of someone or someone's um, creating it, making it to the point that it is the most rich organic soil in which Today. to grow food that you're going to eat. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And people still make it to some degree, but it is certainly not involved as involved as it was. Like, say, the stuff that we see in the Amazon is probably the most dense and rich soil that exists in the world, to the point where it's like sold on the black market, which just oil, I shouldn't call it dirt. The reason why it's so significant, and a number of people have made a number of assertions and assumptions about it, but what they've said is that this terra preta was used, it was perfect, pur purposely created to possibly create the environment that you see today on earth. That yeah, it, it, I mean, it and was, possibly the Amazon forest is planted. Yes, and they they have there is evidence that the Amazon forest was purposefully planted based on the number of plants that are put there and the type. And when they say that, you know, a a, a plant has many indicators of who it is and where it's come from, if it's a hybrid or not. A number of the plants that are currently growing in the Amazon were not necessarily um, like beautiful plants, which you think, you know, oh, there must be so many flowers. These are actually plant foods. They're foods or medicines that were planted in the Amazon in, in particular. And the other thing that we see in the Amazon are a number of geoglyphs. So we're talking very large structures and they're not architectural structures because they're built out of soil and rock and they're built on you know uh, platforms that are also soil and rock and no one's really made a lot of sense of them yet they do mirror some of the things that we see in north america and a few in central america so there seems to be some sort of an exchange or culture there as well i don't know that terra preta has been really investigated as of yet because i think people are just starting to well graham hancock was the first time i heard about it yeah. in before america um yeah. and that just came out a couple years ago but it, how it's made is we can tell that there's like intentional charcoal and burning within it and and and, and fecal material yeah yeah so uh and it's very um evenly mixed which is odd yes. i find so yeah, it's very consistent. The, the, the chemistry of it is very consistent. Again, I'm always looking for alchemical signatures and things because I think that they're the most telling. Whether we see commonality, you know, if we start to see patterns within those signatures or if we start to see like the same ingredient list used, um, the same recipe that we see, you know, reproduced. What it appears as of right now is the recipe that we see that was used in the Amazon is only slightly different than the one that was used in South Africa. Now, the indication is, is that the one that was used in South Africa may actually be an older recipe or an oh. older 
signature than the one that we see there in the Amazon. So, and I don't think that the one that's um, in Australia or New Zealand, sorry, I can't remember which continent, that it may be, they don't know. They still need to investigate it, but it's very interesting to me that they can decide that. And now that we can glean genetics from soil, um, what will that tell us once we start, you know? Jen, we're gonna have stuff? to just be doing our own science. We're just gonna have to get samples of all three, get microscopes. We're gonna have to start <laughs> doing stuff. Just, just gonna, it's gonna have to happen. Yeah, we'll, we'll set up a, a lab in a your lab. mom's Gotta house, it's no lab. problem. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, stuff's gonna happen. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to um, if this, if your Bosnia excavation ends up happening, because I totally am all into that too. I mean, there's, there's so much to learn. So there's stuff coming out about um, like Colombia just had that, um, like the, like I don't know how many miles, like seven miles of petroglyphs that they just found deep in the Amazon. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that, and it really involved. Yeah. Um, yeah, like they, yeah. apparently you would need multiple stories to get, it was really high up too. You have to, you know. Yeah, it's just fascinating. That's why when people say, oh, everything's been found, it's like, nah. no, I don't think everything's been found. Not yet. I think we've only got the tip of the iceberg and I can't even imagine what's hanging out in like all those museum, you know, basements. And I, I mean, just things like Chaco Canyon, which is like one of my biggest mysteries and love it so much. And I've been there multiple, multiple times because I get like weird psychic hits when I go there. So like, I really love it. But um, they were excavated in the early, I don't know, 19, I can't yeah. remember the dates, but 1902, I think. So, and it even has plaques like Smithsonian Institution yep. did it nowhere to be found like you can't there's all the pots the, the apparently the story is they found full baskets of turquoise bracelets and silver from mexico and beautiful pots that were completely full and this and that and there's a museum a national monument museum there and it has nothing in it it just has like pictures of stuff it doesn't actually have any of the artifacts now like when you walk around it's just littered with pottery shards everywhere like where is all this stuff where are these turquoise necklaces where are these big pots like where are the things that they're they're not on display i've been i i am a junkie of the smithsonian institute when i go to washington dc because they're free and i have overnights there a lot and i'll go and look i've never i look intentionally i'll be i'll ask him like do you have any of the chaco canyon uh, site finds they're in a warehouse somewhere, Indiana Jones style. I don't really know. I don't know what's going on. I'm not saying that there's like, there's ancient alien stuff in the Chaco Cane. I don't know, but I'm just saying it's, we don't have that much of the stuff that they collect on display. It's weird. I agree. And I mean, as far as like Chaco Canyon, I think that they, um, you know, there's so many old ideas about who and what Chaco was. And I'm, I also love Chaco. I'm such a, a four corners person. I, I love that area and having worked there. Um, I really fell in love with it. Um, it's a magical place. It truly is. And then as far as like Chaco, Pueblo Benito, a lot of people don't realize that those are astronomically aligned. And that's always yes, so fascinating to me. And that's rarely acknowledged um, and that it was not necessarily a place where people lived, 
but a, um, a, it was of course a ceremonial center because it truly was all of the subterranean structures. But and the problem with that is there, there's, first of all, it, up until like 19 something, it, it, it's the largest uh, skyscraper that there's not, like they were, they were talking, you're talking yeah. about like up to nine to 11 stories, some of these, and there's so many of them. I have a hard time thinking they just built it for ceremonial use. So I think they had to be constantly occupied because they would have been like Pueblo Benito, I think was something like 900 rooms in it. Yeah, I think it was a school. Oh, that was, hey, actually, I haven't heard that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, like a college or something. Yeah, I think it was a school. And that's why you saw periods of time where it was very inhabited and then other periods of time where no one was there because school's out, right? right. Um, it was a major, and the reason I say it was ceremonial is because I think people were going there to learn the aspects of their cosmology. I think it was also a place where people were learning medicine and agriculture. Um, you know, yeah. there's there's these ideas where um, I, I think that the Pueblo, I think that the Pueblo indigenous um, group, they consider it like they don't consider it um, like it, they still think that there are people there because of the spirits that live there based on all of the people who inhabited it and visited there and did what they did there. And I find that a really interesting idea that we don't often tackle in Western society. You know, once someone leaves a place, they're gone and, you know, it, it's as if they never were there. And that's just not the case, especially with that, that area for sure. And, um, you know, the, the indigenous groups that call that place home, it's very much a shared home. Yeah. Um, and, and it definitely also, had highway systems that like connected. Oh my it. gosh. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's the other thing that's rarely talked about. You know, I think during the Trump administration, they had wanted to um, start drilling around very that area near there. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, those structures are so not meant to be jostled or moved around or have heavy equipment around them. Um, but one of the things that upset the tribal elders from the different groups that call that place home was that um, they were destroying the, the arteries or the connections to it that were created prehistorically for the, the roads because they considered those ceremonial roads. Um, which is so often overlooked. I mean, the Sacbes in Mexico, same thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the LIDAR stuff is starting to really like magnify, show us. And I, I that's another thing. It's like, yeah, you're like, I don't think everything's been discovered. Well, I, at one point was like, oh yeah, they've like Google satellite and everything. No, that's not that like LIDAR is very expensive to do. And it's very, um, it's done in very limited places because a lot of people can't afford to have it actually done. They have actually LIDAR to Chaco Canyon, though, and they, they did get a lot of really cool, like, visions of where all the different highway systems are going. But I, there's, there's so much, we are at, I feel like we're at the beginning of a really great time in, in archaeology. I think so, too. Can you imagine if they use LIDAR in Egypt? The Amazon or Egypt? Oh, oh my God. In Egypt, it would be, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, what I'm, what I mean, I'm so amazed about Egypt that we don't talk about is the amount of petrified wood that like in giant petrified wood, like big, like those, that gas station we went to, all those petrified wood pieces that were, that was, that was not an insignificant amount of petrified wood and they were huge. And I was going like, 
we need to talk about this. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, our, you know, isn't that the funny thing, the presumption that the way the planet is in this moment is the way it was in prehistory, which is so far from the truth. Again, back to that, you know, that spot between the Pleistocene and the Holocene, you know, that those two eras, it was really friggin' cold here for a long time. Yeah. And then we before had a that, real was, ice age. Exactly. And then before that, it was really, really hot and steamy and sultry. And that's why we see, you know, you know, whales in the Sudan and stuff like that. But I think that, um, you know, it's kind of out of our purview to think in terms of that. You had um, made allusion to the Sphinx being so much older based on what we see geologically on the body of the Sphinx. You know, we would expect to see lots of wind erosion, um, but in reality, we see a lot of water erosion. Well, we know that 10,000 years ago, the Giza Plateau was really wet. Well, does that mean that the, the Sphinx was built 10,000 years ago? Does it mean that the natural body encasing of you know the, the Sphinx, the body excluding the head? Um, the Sphinx is such a, a paradox because the head is so tiny and it's out of proportion with the rest of the body. So, and we know that it's been reworked a couple of different times. So. We know its orientation doesn't necessarily make sense either with the pyramids. The inclination is, is that there was a second Sphinx. I wonder if LIDAR could tell us that. That would be well, really interesting. Well, or, uh, you know, they've also said that there's things underneath, or the yeah, like chambers underneath this, the Sphinx paws or whatever. Yeah. And um, yeah. What I do think you think about that? Do you think after having been there, I mean, we saw that chamber in the very mm -hmm. back um but i mean I, and it's not like you actually get to go in and, and really look around i i i don't know because you know you hear legends of people talking about how oh there's underground tunnels that will take you from um saqqara all the way to giza plateau which are like 30 minutes apart if you were driving um i i i don't i don't know i i I would like to explore that further. I really would, yeah. Yeah, I when I think about, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of talk about when perhaps when, you know, <clears throat> that Young Adrias impact happened that people did live underground for a period of time, which, you know, we've talked about pretty extensively in private conversations. I feel very curious even more curious about that having after been to Egypt when we went to Valley of the Kings yes and exactly. when I think about the way that those um, structures looked because I don't remember whose tomb we were in whose tomb um, but I just remember thinking I, this doesn't make sense to me that this would be you know it, it basically the way the Valley of the King uh, we didn't go to the Valley of the Queens but the Valley of the Kings looked is they and it's weird because they only let you you get a ticket to go into three different tombs but these tombs are not like oh there's a room with a person's tomb like they they're built like homes like houses in the middle of of these mountains and our tour guide had pointed something out where he was like i think they were reappropriated as tombs but perhaps they were initially built as this was a city and then you're kind of looking around going like oh 
actually that makes a lot of sense. Especially when you think about like the the ventilation systems are what blew my mind. So you know, when yeah, like we why do you need, in, why do you need a ventilation system if you're if it's if it's dead people? Well, and I get it that you need ventilation for the workers working in there, but the ventilation systems were so involved. I mean, and not a little bit. They also had water and catchment areas mm -hmm. at the bottom of some of the ventilation systems. So remember that diorama as we walked into yes, the that Valley was like of a the Kings? Yeah, I yeah. love that. That's what made me think, why do these all need to connect? Why, why would these tunnel systems and I get that people digging would need to have, you know, access to other areas and everything, but it it still reminded me more of what I would see like in Darinuku in yeah. like Turkey or something like that. And then, like you had said, you know, uh, underneath the step pyramid, there is extensive tunneling and there is extensive um, underground systems that exist even in under the Giza Plateau. Um, one of the uh, just north well, of Giza Plateau. The Osiren being underground like that. And like, I felt, I felt like we, I felt like the Osiren wasn't all, I don't know that there's any truth to this or not, but I felt like, like we were, we were getting to see the head of a snake. I felt like there was yes. other stuff around that they haven't even excavated yet or that we're not allowed to go into. I mean, you know, right when you got, when you went, we got into that new room that no one had been able to go into forever and it was like rank and whatever that was cool with the big newt on the sky well yeah. when you went the other direction there was the one one way was restricted we weren't allowed to go in that way and then the other way was was there was rooms that went off of when there, when there was that big long hallway with us there was other things back there that are restricted they were not they were off limits we weren't allowed to go to and i kept on thinking like this is this complex that is the osiren was bigger than we're being let known yeah i agree um there's this really interesting site north of Giza. Um, it's considered possibly the fourth pyramid site, and it is um, Abu Ruwash. I, I wasn't remembering the name, Abu Ruwash. There is this staircase that goes down, and very similar to the Osirian, it's filled with water. Um, it has steps going down, and a number of people have said, oh, it's a boat launch. But there would be no way you could fit a boat down this staircase into this area where there's water. Um, and also the pyramid is, it's basically had, it, it looks like the top has been blown off the pyramid, but I would argue that there was likely maybe never the top of the pyramid and that it had been dug down and then rooms had been chiseled out from the interior of a structure that yeah, could have maybe, yeah. Um, so when we talk about like, you know, only seeing the tip of the iceberg, I totally agree with that. And also Abu Ruwash is off limits. It's, um, I, I believe that the military does um, trainings there. I, I don't know why they would do that, but I do find it curious. It, Google it. It's one of the most amazing sites. Right. Um, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of uh, piezoelectric or uh Ooh, Quartz that's my language. Crystal. That's like, okay. Uh huh. Yep. There's a lot of that all over the area. So, and it's naturally occurring. 
So you know what I was doing those... last night? I was okay. If if you look at the the three the the pyramids, they are. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Sorry, I just I had to get this off my head real fine. quick. Um, the Great Pyramid and the, like, uh, they are like Orion's belt. Okay. Yeah. So then I was like going like, what? Why would the rest of Orion not be there? Why would they just build the belt? So I I was like I was taking the constellation of Orion and I was going okay. So if if this is the like the orientation like if this is how far it is and on scale where would these others be and so i was trying to overlay the constellation of orion onto like a, an egypt map from above and try to fit it in and like it's weird because like they've built over the other places that they would be but i i have yeah. just an instinct that it didn't stop with the belt it's it's too iconic of a of a of a constellation for some reason and it's too it matches too perfect it just the the three right it they just match too perfect so and it's and it's very bizarre because and a reason i thought that as i i talked to these guys um the other day called the starcy twins and they went to this place in mexico called the seven luminaries and it's it's um a place where there's a lot of anomal anomalous it's kind of like a uh, kind of like the zone of silence like there's some weird portal energy that they they talk about there but it's it's a lot like a big silver mine area and what happened is uh it's supposedly there's these i don't know if they're actual meteorite things or whatever but they're shaped in the the constellation form of uh Odin or not Odin. I can't remember what the name of the constellation that they were telling me it was. Wow. But I started kind of going like, there's a lot of stuff where I'm thinking, especially when you talk about like, okay, Chaco Canyon, it's so aligned with, and when, when you say it's astrologically aligned, it means that there are, there are actually places where on this winter solstice and the summer solstice, like the sun goes up to here and shines on yep. this particular thing all the way to here. Like they had calendar markings in their yep. buildings that are still usable today. Well, I mean, they have the dagger petroglyph that is still operating as it should be. It also speaks to, you know, thousands of years of stargazing and understanding, navigating by the stars. And mm -hmm. <laughs> again, another very underrated um, skill set. Yeah. I, I think that it's one of those things, you know, if granted I we're out of the norm we have a giant telescope and we look out at the night sky all the time because the north is a beautiful place to do that we get really beautiful clear skies and the the northern lights um awesome but, you know understanding how the stars move and how you can use them to save your life is pretty dang valuable <laughs> it is it really is but i and think understanding when to plant your food or even excavating archaeology though like if if we're if we talk about how they were how they were so into the astral but yet we don't even look at just basic mapping of constellations for where your next dig site should be and we should oh i love that yeah that's a really cool idea i mean you know that idea just like you said as above so below the um Back to Abu Ruwash, that um, it actually fits into Orion's. Um, it's him pulling his, his the arrow. arrow back. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Which is, you know, I, I make a leap when I say that. I don't know the exact measurement of it, but it sure does look like it fits in that constellation in relationship to the three pyramids. I mean, it would make sense. It would. Yeah. But that <laughs> makes me wonder. Um, 
uh, it makes me want to go back and look at other big sites like the like the Mexico um, pyramid complex, you know, or or kind of look at. Um, well, for me, Saxe Woman in Cusco was way more impressive than Machu Picchu in itself. But yeah, there's there's so much that we can now look at with different lenses, and and in a lot of ways, it's cool because this is we are at the beginning of the Tower of Babel. Like the internet and the way that we're talking to each other right now is like we got to take advantage while this is here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, here's the hopeful side of all of this. Um, we are on the front end of rewriting our history, and. I say that from, you know, being a white person, a colonizer, someone who has basically controlled the narrative to now maybe developing it in a new way and telling the stories of all of those people who came before who were, you know, marginalized and made less than or enslaved. I mean, imagine how rich culture is going to be when we start to get those stories out because we're no longer upholding this narrative you know white people the colonizer the, the yeah. savior whatever it might be because i do think that there's really good work to be done and we're on the front end of allowing those histories to come forward and to hear that truth yeah i think that that that's a really great point and i i remember i was um I was talking to this like elder guy at the um, Taos Pueblo, like when I, I did a tour there and like I was, I was writing down how their government system works. I was like, wait, you have a council of seven? Okay. And then what are they? I was like, he was like, wow, you're taking a lot of notes. And I was like, I, yeah, I know, but I need to, I need to know exactly how your government works. And then well, what are the different offices where they had like an environmental office within that they've always had. The Taos Pueblo is a structure that has been lived in for a thousand years. So it's the, it's like, and it has always been lived in for a thousand years. That's crazy. Yeah. But anyway, I was saying, uh, okay, and what do you guys know about the star people and like the star teachings? He's like, well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're part of our, our, like, it wasn't even a weird question for him. And I was like, well, how come people don't know about like what you think about the star people or the, the <laughs> and how come you guys don't ever talk about it? And he's like, no one ever asked. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm the only person who's asked you about the star people. And he's like, he's in his like seventies or eighties. He's like, yeah, you're the only, you're the only white person who's directly come here and asked me personally about star people. So yeah. And that's the thing we have this inferiority and, and superiority hierarchy thing that, that has been perpetuated throughout time where it, Oh, okay, like they have a legend of this. That's, yeah. that's got to end. And I think it will. I think especially as academia changes and as we see, you know, more people of color coming into it, as well as indigenous people now having a say and an ownership, <clears throat> not because they, they were given it, but because they should and that we should listen to them. I mean, I so strongly believe if we want the answers to um, some of these questions we have about prehistory, whether it be in North America or Europe, we only get those by listening to the stories that have been told for long periods of time, um, how they have been you know, told through oral history or ethnography, those kinds of things. And we really haven't paid enough attention to that. 
We have so much to learn from Indigenous people. I can't say enough good things about the willingness or the the level of just just ownership and desire to get that information out there because it, it just makes us all better. I mean, this narrative that we've been living on really doesn't benefit anybody except for us. So I have to think that creating these opportunities for Indigenous people to say, actually, it was like this, only benefits how we understand our prehistory, wherever we are, our shared human identity um, in the long run. You're so right. I think sexuality is an interesting subject in itself, especially when we look back at prehistory, because um, you know, there's this idea that the Venus figurines were pornographic, and I don't think that that's true, personally. Um, but if we, if we take it a step even deeper into that, what about like matriarchal cultures and sexuality or um, sex as a, you know, something that gives you importance because you are someone who perpetuates the species and you also create communion with you know your cosmology right. or whatever that might be i can see that being very powerful and it makes me wonder why did that change what what happened to make that change i don't know that it, it, i i i honestly feel like it had something to do with um um christianity and like the something in the in the 500 year range where they they really well i don't know even the romans had yeah like, had, had started that that as well like the the dominant or the masculine energy being might or might is right kind of thing um it's really hard to say but i also think that i'm always confused like if you get an iconoclast figure or you know one of the little old old boobs and just nothing like fertility yeah fertility statue fertility i i'm and i kind of go do did people do they really think people went around with like little barbie dolls as if this was like oh if we put this little barbie doll next to our bed then we'll get a kid i i mean that's yeah that's a that's a really bizarre theory to me i, I in art history everything was fertility that's for fertility ceremonial shamanic ceremonial yeah <laughs> um yeah, I think that uh, we're always looking through the lens of our current perception. So it's so hard to get out of our own heads because we look back looking for ourselves, when in reality, we, we can't really do that because we don't exist then, just like they don't really exist for us now. So oftentimes when um, I'm talking to people, I'll say something like, you know, there's always idea of perspective. So you've got etic perspective, outside looking in, emic perspective, inside looking out. And it's, it's really hard to train yourself and to know when you're doing which of those. Um, and, you know, you could even argue maybe you're the container by which someone is looking, looking at both of those things. There's almost like that third perspective that exists too. So, um, I think when, you know, we see these um, fertility figurines, I question that also because who's to say that they weren't just some cool thing a child made up when he was looking or she was looking at her, his, their mother. 
Yeah, um, they really could have been dolls that had clothes and all kinds of other stuff on them, you know, who I. Well, no, that's absolutely true. Even when you look at the, the beautiful um, Minoan figurines that we see, those beautiful goddess figurines, you know, the woman holding a snake in both hands above yep. her shoulders, those were wearing clothing. Those were actually, they had, um, we know that they had some sort of cloth associated with them, but we don't see them that way today. And the only reason we know that they had they cloth associated with them was probably because too. we, exactly, exactly. But we don't know that prehistorically. Just like oftentimes people will say, well, they didn't have writing. Well, likely, yes, maybe they didn't have writing. But what we do know is that they use symbolic um, symbol. We know that they use symbols in rock art. We recently, I can't remember the archaeologist's name, that came symbols that happen all over the world in rock art. And we don't get yeah. to know what those symbols mean yet because someone's figuring that out. But a thousand years from now, like how much of our actual writing will still exist? You think like the hard drive on your computer is still going to be around? Do you think like anything yes. that you've written in paper is going to be around? Most likely not. Like we might have gravestones. We'll be like, yes, they wrote things on. I mean, that's why the stone is so important. And we don't, we don't hardly do anything. And so like, I've never written anything in stone. So, or concrete i've actually I did scribble my name in a concrete block maybe that'll be here for i but maybe not. <laughs> you know other than that you're kind of thinking like there's so much of i like i've heard that whole notion of if a tsunami came and hit everything right now like what would we have to show for yeah i don't i like we don't have a great pyramids like we don't i was thinking about this the other night new york city could be nothing if uh the world if, if the if a big enough tsunami hit it you that's know? true and a thousand years from now like do you really think that all the steel isn't going to corrode all the all the the windows won't be busted out like it, the age of the glue not break down like we are not we're not built forever wait and okay a thousand years from now that's one thing but like talk about six thousand years from now i don't know if we have any structures that i know of that are currently being built in modern day time that'll be around architecturally no we have not our civilization has not created anything. Um, as an archaeologist, I can tell you that what will exist are, is our refuse, our garbage. And those are the things that people will evaluate to determine who we were and what we were about. And they'll be because... like, they had a lot of garbage. <laughs> exactly. And what will that say? You know, they find like, you know, thousands and millions of baby diapers and they had lots of babies. <laughs> you know, right. it's going to be stuff like that. Um, because, and the truth of the matter is, it's the most interesting place to excavate if you want to discover something. Um, when I was in graduate school, I excavated a um, pre-pottery Neolithic B garbage site. I mean, basically, it was part of a, a larger village, um, like habitation site. But I dug through 12,000-year-old garbage. And it was, you know, it was super interesting. Um, found I found a lot of uh, like cranial bones from infants because if your child didn't reach a certain age, you know, usually between three and five, you were considered a viable part of a community. If you didn't reach that age, you likely were not named and you were thrown into the garbage because they didn't necessarily, it's not that they, you weren't valued, it's just that 
you didn't have a place in society yet because you know it was it, it was tumultuous. You may not survive. Um, babies that were named or young children, um, toddlers, usually were buried in the floor if they made it to that naming time. So you find three and four-year-old children buried in the floors of habitation sites from Jordan in that area, Middle East really, um, general vicinity. So it tells us a lot about people. Um, yeah. That was a really interesting site. I was really lucky. Um, that tells that, you a lot about like, maybe in, uh, infant mortality in general. Maybe they didn't get attached because it wasn't, I mean, a lot of, there was probably a lot of infant mortality then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the other thing that we saw a lot of was um, defensive breaks in arms. So we know that there was a lot of, there must have been a lot of stress during the Neolithic because, you know, um, there was a lot of domestic violence and people were hurting their significant others and their children a lot. There was a lot of that. Um, <clears throat> it's also where we saw the domestication of pistachios and sheep awesome. and um, yeah. So there was a lot happening there during that time. And it really like, can you imagine the stress of that? Like planting your pistachio trees and just like crossing your fingers and hoping that they make it. Yeah. That's a real consideration. Yeah. yeah. All right, Miss Jen, this has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. We got to do it again thank sometime. You. Cause like, you're, I, loved it. I, I know we could geek out about like, Oh my God, we could talk forever. I could seriously talk to you forever. <laughs> and then my cat sneaks in. I know. I love that. That's too, it's like, <laughs> Hello. Remember. Come out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's good to see you, Nikki. Love you. And I'll see you soon. Yes. And we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Bye.